there are rabbis who like you always have them in pairs, you know, this one and that one. And they were like steady partners and they loved each other and they argued with each other. But Choni was sort of all on his own. He brought the rain on his own. He had it stop on his own. Like he was really sort of a solitary, charismatic miracle worker. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. This week, I'm doing something a little different. I'm offering up another form of the Beside Project podcast. Going forward, there'll be two types of shows. One will be the interview narrative style that I've had so far and that I deeply love. And the other will be a series I'm calling Teach Me Something. I get to have incredible interactions with smart humans and their wisdom and insights really need to be shared. So I'll be weaving in Teach Me Something conversations alongside the interviews. Let me know what you think by reaching out at besideproject.org. For the first Teach Me Something, I recorded a call with the incredible Rabbi Lisa Goldstein. I am Rabbi Lisa Goldstein, and I am a teacher and a a spiritual director and coach and consultant living in New York City. By the end of her intro, Lisa is laughing because she is obviously a great many things, too many things to neatly fit on a business card or in a very quick intro. She's an amazing teacher, and I feel lucky to know and learn from her. A little while back, Lisa and I were talking about references to end-of-life experiences as portrayed in the Talmud, the central rabbinic writings about laws and Jewish practice, when she shared with me the story of Choni Hameagel, or Choni the Circle Maker. Yes, the Circle Maker. As we were talking about the story, it felt like it was the first time I was hearing it, and only afterwards I realized it was not the first time, but it was the first time I had heard it in the way she taught it. I only ever explored one side of the story, the theme of leadership. And as you'll hear, the Choni story has quite a few other angles. Choni Hameagel which is sometimes translated as Choni, the circle maker. We know about Choni from the Babylonian Talmud, um, the tractate called Ta'anit, which is about about what to do when the rains don't come on time and um, the community starts worrying that there is going to be a drought and a famine and people are going to die. So like this whole tractate is about like what, what, what do you do? in those circumstances when the rain doesn't come. So Choni makes an appearance because he's got like this, like this amazing relationship with God where God cannot refuse Choni anything. So usually like there's this whole thing, like the rain doesn't come by this, you start fasting and then you do this. And there's like these prayers that you say, but what Choni does is he goes out, the rain hadn't come and the people were getting really sort of distraught. And he, um, he went outside and he drew a circle in the dust And he said, God, I'm standing here until you make it rain. And so like this little tiny rain started and the people came, the leaders came to Choni and said, okay, this is great, but like, we need serious help here. Like we need the cisterns to fill. We need. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. 
Yes. <laughs> what? Who's Honey? Yeah. Don't know. Don't know. He's like, he's like this miracle worker. He's got this special connection and God cannot refuse him. And we have no idea why. We don't really know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah. You know, Choni's, the story of Choni is about a lot of different things, but I think one of the things that it's also about is um, about what it means to be a charismatic leader. You know, someone who can just like go out there and single-handedly make it happen. You know, and if like forget the committee, forget the whatever else. Like he just goes out there and says, okay, God, make it rain. And it rains. Okay. Got it. And then, but, and his calling card is this circle. So he creates, yes, it's, it's almost like a, you know, like a witch's circle, you know, or like, you know, <laughs> sort of like one of those enchanted circles. It's an enchanted circle. So enchanted he gets in. circle. Great. Yeah. So it starts raining very gently and the leaders are like, actually, like, I hate to say this, but you know, we, we need, we need more rain than this. So then Choni says, Hey God, can't you like put it up a notch? And so then the rain starts pouring, like really coming down and all the cisterns fill up and the rain keeps coming. The dial and is a little bit broken. It, yeah, so then the leaders come back and say like, this is great. Like our cisterns are all full. Like we were set for the year and, but it's still raining. It's like, it's almost like raining. Like it's going to destroy the world. You know, Noah's flood kind of a thing. So Choni says, okay, God, that's enough. That's good. And the rain stops. So this was kind of amazing. So that's like story one about Choni. And then story two is that he, um, it starts off that there's, um, he's looking at, at the psalm that we say um, just before Birkat Hamazon. On Shabbat and, and holidays, there's an extra psalm that's added to the grace after meals to the Birkat Hamazon. So you know, before sort of launching into, we're thanking God that we're full and that, uh, that we just, we didn't lack for food. We, we say Psalm 126 which um, is a beautiful psalm. It's, it's, um, it's basically a psalm saying that when God reversed our fortunes, when we, were, when we were exiled and God brought us back, we could hardly believe how happy we were. And then it goes to say that um, sometimes good things can happen in the blink of an eye. And the image that it gives is like a, a flash flood coming through the desert, just like poof. You know, I used to live in, in California and um, there was a desert. I used to live in San Diego and on the other side of the Cuyamaca Mountains is the Anza Borrego Desert. And there's a little um, oasis there that was like a big tourist attraction. You know, it's like easy hike, you know, like an hour and you go up like in the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden you come to this oasis, palm trees and water. It's like very, very cool. So there was a flash flood and so much water came through that canyon that the stream ended up in a completely different place. Like the whole landscape was completely changed in the blink of an eye. It's like amazing what these flash floods in the desert can do. So the Psalm says, like often we think things take a long time to get better, but it can happen like that, just boom. It has then a, a more pastoral image of somebody sowing the fields, weeping, but then harvesting with, with joy and singing. It's a beautiful Psalm. I'm curious, is that the connection? Um, does that link the two stories? So, I, well, I know where story two is going. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, so the one part of the Psalm says, when things happened, we were like dreamers. 
And he's like, you know, the exile lasted 70 years. How can, how can an exile of 70 years be like dreaming? That makes no sense. And he sort of scoffed at it. So that's sort of like the introduction to the second story. You know, he's walking down the road. He sees a man planting carob trees. And Honi says to him, like, like, are you going to see, you know, it takes 70 years for a carob tree to bear fruit. Like, who's going to eat that? And this pattern. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, 70 years. So, um, which, by the way, is the, um, in another psalm, um, 70 years is the length of a human life. Right. In Psalm 90, it says that uh, the the length of a human life is 70 years and with strength, it's 80 years um, and they're difficult years and they fly by quickly. It's actually a very beautiful line in Psalm 90. It's often read at funerals and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. We could do a whole thing on Psalm Sarit. Okay. (laughs) Teach me to understand them. I love Psalms. Oh my gosh. I've been teaching a lot about Psalms recently. Maybe it's because I'm not a poet. I'm missing poet sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely um, figurative language and dream language sometimes. So anyway, so Choni's like, you know, 70, take 70 years for this thing to bear fruit. Like, why are you going through all this effort? And because, you know, he's used to doing things on his own, right? He sees instant results. He draws a circle on the ground and the rain comes. Boom. He's did it by himself. He does no delayed gratification. Like he's done. Um, but the man said, look, I came into a world where there are carob trees. So I'm planting for my children and grandchildren. Like that's, that's what I'm doing. So Connie's like, hmm, okay. He goes, he eats his lunch. He says, kind of sleepy, takes a nap. But while he's sleeping, the rocks sort of grow up around him and he sleeps for 70 years and he comes out and um, doesn't really realize he slept 70 years. And he comes out and he sees the carob trees are bearing fruit. And he says to the man who's there, like, wow, like what happened? Like who planted those? And the man said, well, my, my grandfather planted them. And so Honey's like, oh my gosh, I slept 70 years. He also, he noticed he had his donkey there and he knew there were like herds of donkeys. Because <laughs> you know, over the seven years, the donkeys had had many generations. I like this visual. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's not just enough to read 70 years past. It's like, we're being painted this picture. Exactly. So then he goes home and he asks for his son and his son's gone and his grandchildren are adults. And then he goes to the house of study and um, he hears them saying, oh, back in the day, Honey used to have like the best answers to everything. And he's like, here I am. It's me. And they didn't believe him. And he was so hurt and felt so exiled, you know, from the life that he knew that he prayed for death. And, um, and God has always listened to him. And he died. And as a result, the rabbis taught this very famous line, Ochevruta omituta, which is either companionship or death. And it's such an interesting thing because like Choni didn't really understand companionship. It's never, you know, there, there are rabbis who like you always have them in pairs, you know, this one and that one. And they were like study partners and they loved each other and they argued with each other. But Choni was sort of all on his own. He brought the rain on his own. He had it stop on his own. Like he was really sort of a solitary, charismatic miracle worker. 
And then we also have this visual array of him inside of a circle. He literally draws a boundary around himself apart from everyone else. Exactly. But then he gets to this point where he realizes, oh, wow, like this is, this is so lonely. Like, I don't want to live in a life that's this lonely. It's so heartbreaking. I feel myself like, so full disclosure, this is the second time we're talking about this. And the first time I just remember being in complete tears by the end of hearing this story. And this time there's more color to it, which I'm finding really interesting. And I want to dive into that. And I want to go back and think about the leadership piece. And I still find myself kind of reflecting on this end piece about wanting death because death is better than being lonely. And it still breaks my heart. Like I, I feel it. I feel the the tears coming. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I worked with older people at the end of their lives. And I remember my grandparents at the end of their life. And I remember um, specifically my Bubby who had never lived alone, mm-hmm. who had never lived alone. She grew up in a shtetl in Poland. You know, I think it was like the Poland Belarus border, you know, one of those mm-hmm. shifting things. And she, she lived with her family because you always lived with your family. And then she came to this country and she lived with her family here. And then she met my grandfather and she ended up living with his family first. And then they had their own apartment and her kids and everyone lived together. And then when everyone left, it was still her and my Zeta and my grandfather in their apartment. And when he died, she didn't want to be alone. And I remember one of the first things she said after his death, we were talking about it was, I've never lived alone. And I moved in with her mm-hmm. almost immediately after. I could, I, 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 oh, such a gift, such a gift for me. I really feel, I mean, I I understand the value that it had for her at that time. And also the experience of getting to live with my Bubby and sharing that space with her and trying to prevent that living alone, being lonely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, like I lived alone from the ages of 24 to 49. So almost half my life. I lived alone. That sense of being alone and being lonely and like when those things are the same and when they're not and how you know how you can be in a crowd of people, you can be in an intimate relationship and feel so alone. And I think that it points towards the sense that you know I think we come into this world for connection. Like real I mean fundamentally we come into this world for connection. And for so many of us, many of us, it's what we most desire. And it's also like what we're scared of sometimes most is scared of. Like, I think like, why was Choni doing all this work by himself at the beginning? Like, you know, why didn't he teach other people like how to bring the rain or, um, you know, was that something that he alone could do? Was his relationship with God so powerful that he didn't need anybody else? You know, is it sort of like a monastic model within rabbinic Judaism that never got fulfilled because ultimately the rabbis were like, no, like, like your bubby, like life is with people. That's where the juicy stuff happens. That's where the holy happens. You know, we can't pray without a minion. And he had to learn this lesson. It's interesting. I'm trying to think about, um, wait, is it, is it? a realization of like authentic relationship or being known 
Maybe he comes in and he says like, I'm, I'm him. I'm this guy you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of blow it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that, right. Like that moment from the story, as I've heard from you is like the moment where he's like, Oh, well now. Yeah. Nobody knows me. Yeah. I mean, I see that sometimes in older people also, you know, where people are, um, you know, experts in their fields and then they retire and the work goes on and, you know, they come back and like, I was the person who did that. And they're like, okay, boomer, or, you know, whatever it is that they're <laughs> saying, you know, like, you know, we've moved on. And that sense of, um, I had a mentor in a rabbinical school who felt that way. And, um, and it was interesting because on the one hand, I had also moved on from his values, but I loved him so much that I felt like like my, it was my um, honor to be able to create a space for him to reflect on all of that and to feel that sense of kavod, of honor and of respect and of um, admiration, even though it w- actually wasn't my values, like the the content of it but the relationship was so precious to me that um, it felt, it felt authentic. It felt important. Yeah. And for, I don't know, like for Honey, like it could be because like the rabbis were telling the story, like they, um, they don't talk a lot about their home lives. They don't talk about their families so much. Like they're like, they're there to study Torah and they're there, you know, and obviously to, you know, they do, they talk about each other and sometimes there's stories about their home lives, but, um, but the value, the greatest value is studying Torah and, um, and then living a Torah informed life. You know, I think about like, if my great grandparents would suddenly show up and say, I'm back, I would be like, wow, like I have so much I want to ask you, you know, I have like all these questions and like, I want to know about you. And um, like, we yeah. don't see any of that happening for Honi. Um, and I wonder if it's because the rabbis were telling the story, like that's just not where their interest lies. You know, their interest mm. lies for them. Chavruta is like companionship is, um, is your study partner. But even then, I would think that they would, if you know, so, okay, so the guy sounds a little crazy. Like he comes in and says, like, I'm this guy from a generation ago. Um, still, like, you might want to say, well, like, how did they study Torah back then? And, you know, what have <laughs> we forgotten that you still remember? And, you know, tell us about some other rabbi that you were friends with that we have all these legends about. But for whatever reason, they don't do that. It was all talk. Yeah. <laughs> they had their moment. Exactly. They didn't seize it. And then I come back right to this, this end piece of, well, this life isn't worth living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like here was this guy who sounds important, mm-hmm. who sounds, you know, that he, he felt important, that he felt possibly fulfilled. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then to be alone. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember the first time we talked about it, I, my head went to thinking about, all the people during this pandemic who have died alone, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who have been in hospital beds separate Mm -hmm. from their families who are dying unknown Mm -hmm. to the people around them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, talk about exile. What a time. Yeah. The the concept of exile is, is really interesting too. Like Ahoni was exiled in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking a lot about how we talk about our lives now. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been a year. And even in the beginning, and we still talk this way, but even you know, right away, we felt it. We felt time completely shift. Mm-hmm. We lost our boundaries and our markers of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, everything blended together. We all joked, whatever day it is. Mm-hmm. And still, you know, it tags mm-hmm. in to conversations or emails or what is time or we've all been sent into a time exile. I think it's one of the things that's so powerful about this year marker in, um, that people are sort of seizing on it. Like it has been like, it's because it's a way of measuring time. Mm. I was just noticing today how the light has changed, you know, back into springtime light, which is how it was when this whole thing started. And it like brings up the quality of the light brings up like a different, um, like, oh yeah, it really has been a year. Yeah. I'm thinking about, I'm trying in my head, I'm thinking about like the parallels and like, you know, what are the, the circles that we're drawing and what are we asking for and what's being received or not received and our homes and our, our immediate families have become mm-hmm. these circles our, and our pods, our pods and that I feel incredibly lucky to have people in my pod with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the people who mm-hmm. might not. Yeah. You know, and we know, we know that there are people who look at this, you know, either companionship or death and are so lonely in this, that they're choosing death, you know, suicide rates and just feeling like this is just too much. It's too much. Life is with people. I wish there was something to say about that. You know, I, yeah, it feels so helpless mm-hmm. in a way. And, and reading this story on one hand, it's, it's comforting to know that how many thousand years ago, you know, our rabbis acknowledged this, mm-hmm. the weight of this and the difficulty mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make it easier to think about now. No, because I think it's it's a fundamental um, aspect of human existence. But I think what it can invite us into is that, you know, the thing that made it so intolerable for Honey is that he just felt so unseen, like nobody cared. And so I think that, you know, we can't, we can't do a lot of changing. We can't change other people's context very much, but we can see them in their context. I just had a conversation, um, an email exchange with someone who's like had a really like difficult time and had a relative who committed suicide. I mean, it's like a, just like a terrible, terrible thing. And she's a social worker and takes care of everyone. And I was just sort of emailing about something else and just sort of checking in. Like, this has been such a time of um, disruption and grief for you. And she wrote back and said, wow, you know, I'm so busy taking care of other people that I didn't really get it. Like, I forget how, like, my own heart. And like, thank you for seeing that because then I can... Um, I can be with that and that's what's going to help me heal. And so I think that if we can learn anything from Honey, it's not about being the charismatic circle maker and doing it all by myself, but it's like, you know, how can I look at others 
and not just their achievements and their whatever, but to like, like this person feels like they're in exile. You know, can I, can I just see that? I can't change it, but can I see it and extend care so that they feel seen and they don't feel so horribly alone? That's really beautiful to be seen. Yeah. It's what we all want. Yeah. All of us. And in our wholeness, not just in our shiny social media manifestation. Do you think Khoni would have been pleased to some extent to know that he had been seen and recorded in the stories this way? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Poor Khoni. <laughs> Poor Khoni. What a story. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It really is. As you can hear, recording a live conversation allows us to connect dots quickly and move around a lot. There was much to talk about in a short amount of time. And now I'll try to pull together some final thoughts as a bookend. This past year has, at least for me, been simultaneously incredibly fast and painfully slow. Like Lisa and I chatted about, time has gotten weird. And in a lot of ways, that's how we talk about dreams. I have definitely tried to share dreams with people where I'll say something like, we were here and then something happened, but I don't know what, and then we were somewhere else. For both dreaming and for the concept of exile as it is in this story and our lives, time isn't linear. And to the rabbi's point, Lisa and our OG rabbis, being seen is so important. One way this links directly to the Beside Project and something that comes up all the time is the fear of thinking about death and end of life. We are not alone in our fears, and we don't have to draw circles and try to make sense of it all on our own. The more we begin to acknowledge that and lend an empathetic ear and an open heart to the ones we love, we might find ourselves with more capacity to approach these topics than we previously thought we had. So here's to Choni, a reminder that things don't always go as planned, that our fortunes can shift quickly, that our legacies can be long-lasting through the ages, like Choni Hame'agel, or for the next generation, like the fruit of a carob tree, and that being there for each other in times of confusion, pain, or darkness can be as simple as, I see you. You know, it's funny, there's a, a moment in the story <laughs> that both times you have shared the story with me now, I have this very strange, um, just a brain blip in the middle of it when you talk about the carob trees. I don't know how you feel about carob, but I was made to eat carob once a year growing up. I think it was maybe around two bishvat uh-huh. and absolutely hated it. And I'm I'm both like upset that there's carob in the story and also kind of fascinated that carob takes 70 years to grow. And then I took back to being upset though, because I'm like, here's something that took so long to fruit, right? Like so long. And I don't want to go anywhere near it. It was chewing on, on bark. I I don't even remember. I remember what it tastes like, but I don't, it tastes like carob. (laughs) When I was a kid, it was a chocolate substitute. Can Mm -hmm. you imagine? Mm -hmm. Definitely not. I, yeah. I definitely but have fresh carrot is actually really yummy. 
fresh carob is um, soft and chewy and um, and quite delightful. Wait, so you don't have to eat it in its hardened shell form? So it's you know it's a pod, right? Yeah. It's a seed pod. Mm-hmm. And so the seed pod, like if it's when it's fresh, is soft and chewy. And then like the longer that it's on the tree, it gets harder and harder and harder. So I must have never been given fresh carob. <laughs> Next year on Tubish Fat Sarid. <laughs> well, I don't know how I'm gonna get point, you. Point point me to fresh but... <laughs> With big gratitude to Rabbi Lisa Goldstein for joining me on this episode of the podcast and for definitely teaching me something. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.